0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. For much of her life, Jana Pittman has been running at full speed. She took on the most technically and physically gruelling sprint on the track, the 400 metres hurdles. She was so fast, she became world and Commonwealth champion. But even that wasn't quite enough. She dreamt of Olympic gold. Jana's determination and disappointments played out in public as injuries shattered those dreams again and again. But those experiences gave her new strength and insight for a remarkable second chapter. Jana Pittman has gone on to become a doctor, an Olympic bobsledder and a mother of six. Now she's in the middle of a PhD in obstetrics and has written a book titled enough. Jana Pittman, welcome to Conversations. Thank you for having me. When you look at photos of you as a kid at school, what do you see behind those <laughs> eyes? What kind of kid was there?
1: Look, as a young kid, um, I was a really optimistic, content child. So I see a lot of life, love and adventure. So always passionate about trying to take on the world. I think as I became a teenager, I lost that a little bit. But yes, as a young person, I came from a family that advocated for everything. Uh, for you and and possibilities and dreams. And and so it was always, you were always there to to make a difference. And I think I'm very, very lucky that my mother played a huge part in that, in in making me believe that anything in, in life is possible.
0: What was it like for you being a member of a class, dealing with classmates at, at school? Did that make sense to you? Not entirely. <laughs>
1: I think I am a little neurodiverse in that space. I'll be honest with you and own that <laughs> straight away. <laughs> Look, I had a very eclectic upbringing with a lot of family that was actually my friendship group. So outside of school, we had lots of cousins. I think I had 28 cousins by the time I was 10. So we had a really- That's a tribe, it's isn't a it? tribe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we had a really wonderful outside of school network, but school was always a bit of a struggle for me. I a bit quirky, let's be honest. So I didn't fit in always at the school environment. Um, I was always someone who was chasing academic results and sporting results. And I think that doesn't always play into being likable at all times.
0: Was that hard for you?
1: Yeah, of course, because I'm also innately someone who just wants to be liked. Don't <laughs> <Totally>. we <laughs> <So, yeah>, Exactly. <laughs> so uh, it took many, many years, probably into my early, early to mid thirties before I really found Um, myself and felt comfortable in my own skin. And that's actually why I I wrote the book Enough. So it's not, have you had enough? It's about being and feeling that you are enough. Um, Because I think a lot of us really struggle in that space and ruminate on what we could do differently to be more likable or to fit in more or just to not stand out as much. And I think often we, we play on our weaknesses when actually most of the time they're actually our strengths.
0: What would lunchtime look like for you at school?
1: Oh, I was a dork, completely. But that actually wasn't entirely because um, I was not a social. I was a complete social butterfly. I loved hanging out with kids. But the ruling with my parents was if I wanted to train that night, I couldn't fall back in my academic results. So I had homework to do. So I regularly hung out in the library and did most of my homework. And that's not engaging enough for other kids. So... I think most of the time I had wonderful friendship with the librarians and they give you great books and study, <laughs> but it was a commitment, you know. So yeah, I was a pretty intense little kid, but for me I wanted to make the Olympics and I was gunning for the Olympic Games by the time I was 15. It sounds like there was a lot of discipline there for 100%. You. Yes. I've always, look, I I get asked that because I do a lot of public speaking these days and people sort of always ask the question, was it innate? You know, are you just a really naturally disciplined person? In fact, I got asked a really good question last week saying, does it come from a guilt factor or a striving factor? Oh, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) I had to think about it for a while. I'm like up on stage going, I'm not really sure. I think partial, partially some guilt. So one of that sort of underlying driver of, if you've been told to do 10, do 11. Um, and then you can rest easy because you know you've done your absolute best. Uh, So there's definitely a component of that. But as I've gotten older, it's definitely more now driving for success that you enjoy rather than just hitting boxes. And and I realised that more is not actually um, always better.
0: What kind of sense did you have of your body as a kid? Because when you're an athlete, especially as a female athlete, it's a different thing. Your body can do things that your friends' bodies can't do that. That strength and speed and that exhilaration <laughs> yeah. is—it's it, hard to get get people, other people's heads around. Sometimes. I took it for granted, though. Let's be really honest. <laughs> um, I was always taller and bigger than all the other
1: kids, and very much didn't realise how lucky I was to have that physique in sport. Yes, I was very in tune with my body. I always have been, but some would say probably not enough because I wouldn't recognise when an injury was coming, or I would, but then I didn't have the Sense to pull back in training. I kept going gunning and gunning and gunning for that um, for those times and that uh, that capacity to run faster. And if I had have listened a little harder, <laughs> I probably would have saved myself some of that heartache.
0: Did your physical strength give you confidence?
1: It does now. The physicality and prowess of being a big woman does now. But I reckon as a young person, it made me hunch a little bit and just be a little awkward and feel a little bit like you stood out again. So I was always, I guess I was, like, I was always standing out. I was always a little bit different. Um, you know, I was like almost six foot tall by the time I was 12. <laughs> so, <laughs> always the biggest person in the classroom at the back of the photographs and things. I, I know there'd be many people nodding their heads listening to this going, "Yeah." you just feel a bit awkward because you just...
0: You're just a bit bigger than everyone else. You and I are similar. Yes. Hide. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's interesting taking up space as, as a kid when you're a female who's a lot taller and bigger. Correct. As, and if you're then academically good as well, you you just, you do feel like you take up so much space when sometimes you just want to hide. <laughs> How did you deal with your success as a school kid, either academically or sporting wise? It can be a wonderful thing, but it can kind of sometimes isolate you from peers sometimes. Absolutely. I've always
1: been a very resilient person, I think, um, partially because I get, I'm get, i quite comfortable with, being, with failure. So I've gone and I push myself quite hard through that sort of fear space. Now, I've always been a highly anxious, chaotic mind, don't get me wrong. So it's not that I don't have the fears there. I just push through them and accept that that's part of the journey kind of thing, even when I was a kid. So when it comes down to doing well, my success came from the fact that I was just going to give everything a shot. And if it didn't work out, I'd find another plan. And I think that's actually also what scares people away a little bit because... You just don't seem to be disappointed when things don't go to plan or if a kid teases you at school, you have a bit of a cry and then you're fine the next day. But thankfully that's held me in great stead for most of my career because, you know, when you are attacking the highest goals in the world, you are going to come up against criticism and you need to have a thick skin. Don't get me wrong, or marshmallow on the inside, but <laughs> you have to on you have to be able to move through it.
0: What secretly do you think was your biggest vulnerability as, as a kid at school when um, you look at it now?
1: Wanting to be liked, making lots of friends when... I was also then not available to go out and do things. So, you know, another kid can only ask you five times to go out on the weekend and you say no and then they don't want to have that interaction anymore. So I'd say wanting the social, social life but then not having the skills to actually do it and then not having the time to
0: learn someone else's um, perspectives on what friendship is. When you come home from school with a day like that, what would mum or dad say to you when you were asking questions or talking about what that was like for you? Do you know they didn't recognise it at all? So I spoke to my mum a few years ago
1: saying, oh, did you know that like, I was like a complete dork at school? And she's like, no, I just thought you were quirky and really good at, you know, good. The teachers loved you, so we thought you were really happy at school. And so it's interesting because I now look at one of my daughters who is like looking in the mirror. <laughs> I feel so sorry for the poor kid. She can run too, which is great. But I have to really recognise that even though she's smiling when she comes home from school, the little hints that she drops, like, mummy, I have no friends. And you're like, Oh, I have to listen to that because I know I would have said the same thing when I was a youngster and it was not heard. And so I think as parents, it's something we need to ask our kids because the school playground can be rough. I've, I've really learned that about my daughter because, yeah, it definitely wasn't something that was recognised. But then and again, it didn't matter so much because, again, I fell back on my, on my extended families. We had such great relationships with all our cousins and friends. We were always travelling, always going on driving holidays.
0: I, I had a phenomenal you know, upbringing and life as a kid. The idea of becoming a doctor when you were a kid, where was that sitting for you?
1: I don't don't know why because I don't have any doctors in my family. (laughs) I I must have watched a television show or something, but I was pretty convinced by the time I was five or six that I wanted to be a doctor um, to the point that mum and dad had bought me this gorgeous little bag, like, you know, the old-fashioned leather bags that used to clip at the top, like, you know, you see in the movies in the 30s and 40s sort of thing. I love the idea of helping other people. I've always loved the idea of surgery, you know, blood and guts and stuff, so, and I'm probably in one of the bloodiest... Specialties now anyway, Absolutely. So, or trying to get into it at the moment. I'm on the cusp of hopefully starting my specialty training. So but you know what? I feel so, so incredibly grateful that I already had that backup plan because it's definitely what's got me through the sporting career. So to have that plan B that is actually almost a plan A for me
0: is pretty special. So you had this idea of medicine in the, in the back of your mind. You're running at school. What race was it when you realized, actually, I could really run. Like I could, I've got permission to dream here to actually go all the way. <laughs> all the way.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was actually a, this like New South Wales Championships. I just started training with Jackie Burns and actually probably the year before that, just when they asked me to join their squad. So Jackie Burns was Melinda Gainsford Taylor's coach and she was a bit of a childhood hero of mine. Absolutely. Her and Kathy Freeman and Jane Fleming were the three idols that I had as a youngster. But she was kind of looking for a training partner just outside of the Sydney Olympics. So Jackie had come down to the local sports track to hand out medals and just happened to see me run a very, very fast 400 metres, about two seconds off the qualifying for the Olympics. And she's like, oh, she's only 14. We'll give this little kid a crack. So she approached us and said, would I like to be Melinda Gainsford-Taylor? training partner. And obviously I was like tickled pink. I mean, it's like all your dreams come true in one setting. The the issue was we had to go all the way to Narrabeen to train with her. So it was again, a huge commitment from my beautiful mother, Jackie, who drove me there every day. So, or every second day. So that was probably the first time when you realised, actually, there's something ticking in this department, which might
0: end up being a career in sport. So when would you dream in, in an ordinary day? Is it going home from school or when you're getting ready to go to sleep thinking, I want to go all the way with this?
1: So athletics was never my plan, in, in all truth. It was always medicine and, a, and an academic career. But, you know, when you're good at something and, you, again, it falls back onto the, oh, I'm good at this. And at the athletics track, I was quite popular and I had good friends. We're all a bit quirky. We're all a bit intense. So we, I made more friends there. So I started liking it for the social reasons rather than, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. And then I guess being so big and strong, naturally, within a year or two of just starting track and field, I, I was winning it. So, But it was never a plan. Um, it was around that time when Jackie said to me, look, you might you might make the, at that stage, 2000 and, 2004 Olympic Games. And I was like, oh, that's great. And suddenly with a little bit of training within six months, it's like, actually, no, you're going to make the 2000 Games. You're going to go as a 17-year-old to the Olympics. And that was just unheard of. But it wasn't actually my dream initially it was more the crew around me and the, and the village that I that was supporting me saying you've got this you've got this mate if you want to if you want a career in sport this could be your opportunity and i don't think any kid would not run with that
0: what sort of role did your dad play in calming you down if you were nervous yes. and, and <laughs> focusing you? What would he say to you, Yana? He'd also pump me up, Sal. He was he was, <laughs> this,
1: he was a workhorse. Okay. So if if I, my mum is the soft, gentle, but also very brutal. My dad was the guy that worked on Christmas Day. Like he had such an incredible work engine. And so just showed me what, what it took to be successful. You know, he had his own business. So he would never take time off work. Like never. It literally would even work the morning of Christmas, go on the building site and then come out, you know, have a little bit of lunch and go back to the building site again. He was so dedicated to, to his work. But if I was running a track meet, he would take the day off and usually be the one who escorted me to the track. And then he'd warm me up and we had this sort of ritual of saying how fast are you, how strong are you, as you know, as fast as a lion, as sorry, as strong as a lion, as fast as a tiger, or a cheetah, depending on the day. Um, and that was his little ritual. And then he'd give me a big hug for someone who's not very affectionate. So that was a, a big part of getting in and sort of showing me he loved being part of that journey with me. And so, yes, I reckon there was definitely a time where I ran just to make Dad come to the track with me, which, you know, people probably go, oh, it's a bit sad, you know, that you didn't have that connection. But he's such a, like you didn't have that ongoing time with your Dad as much. But this is 30 years ago, 40 years ago even. I just look at him as a complete extraordinaire of um, of work ethic and gave me all the tools that I needed to to set up my life for
0: success. That relationship between Dads and their daughters can be a really interesting one and a really powerful one in sport often, if they're not in the day-to-day of your life, if they focus in on that sporting career, they can give daughters a lot of belief as he well. He did. 100% mm. my belief came from my dad.
1: Mum could have told me every day that I was going to be successful and I wouldn't <laughs> have listened. But dad gave it to me once and I was like, yep, that's it. Uh, he He's, yeah, he was that. He was also a man though that would like read us stories to bed every night or make up stories at night. So he was not there, but then he was there in all the ways that the kids fall in love with their dads. So I think that made mum think, hang on, I'm here every day doing all the hard work and dad gets all the accolades. Do you know, as a, as a team, couldn't have asked for better parents. In
0: 1999, you won your first world uh, youth title. What did that mean for
1: you? I knew the Olympics were on the cards and I sort of like, you know, in the, in the distance, but that was the first time when I realised... I really was going to have a career in sport if I chose to. It was over in, I think it was in Poland from memory, Poland, a big gosh in Poland. And it was the first huge, you know, big international trip that I'd been on. So it was a bit exciting just to, to go and travel as a team. The first Australian, you know, green and gold uniform. I knew I went in there with a chance of bringing home a medal, but to come home with gold and hear the Aussie anthem for the first time in your career is something that's very addictive, let's say. So you start chasing that experience over and over again.
0: Has success been addictive for you, do you think? <sighs> yes,
1: definitely. Of course. But it's not I like guess I said before, it's not even I'm not even sure if it's the success that's addictive, but the completion of a goal. So I'm very task orientated. So I when I set my mind to something, it's the relief when something is completed and the enjoyment of that happening that I really I really like.
0: So you win the the World Youth title in nineteen ninety nine and there's a bit of a plan that Uh, You hope to uh, carry the baskets at the 2000 Olympics. (laughs) So when the athletes are getting ready to start their race, they strip off out of their tracksuit. Someone's waiting there with a basket, and often that's young athletes. So that was kind of going to be your 2000 Olympics. Yeah,
1: But what happened? It's such a cool thing because you get up and, up close and personal with Cathy Freeman. You know, you're within a metre or two of your, your hero. I've seen so, Usain Bolt fist bumping with yeah, some of exactly. the basket carriers it's just back It's in a day. really, really nice <laughs> thing to engage young athletes to get really close and, and see their stars and their heroes so, so you know, so close. So um, that was my goal. I'd, put the, put, I'd got the letter saying, yes, you're accepted, you're going to be a basket carrier at the Olympics. And then all of a sudden one weekend we were just training for the World Juniors because they were just after the Olympics thinking, okay, let's hope we can get a medal at the World Juniors as well, which is a little bit harder than the World Youth Champs because World Youth is under 18s and World Juniors is under twenty. So it's just that next level up. Um, and I ran this race in Sydney and I was hoping to run contacts around 53 seconds, 52 would be great, like that would be amazing, that would, that would be enough to win the World Juniors. And somehow I ran like 51.8, like this crazy, crazy time, which was absolutely unexpected and, and definitely stood me in, good, in a good place to say she's not only going to be an Olympic runner, she may be in a world beating track athlete. So that was the very beginning of the shift from I want to make the Olympics to so I want to win the Olympics. And all of a sudden I was going to my first Olympics. And it's so funny because I tried to bargain to do the basket carrying and go to the Olympics. And they're like, yeah, no, mate.
0: <laughs> no, that's it, not, that's sorry.
1: Not <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, so over, literally overnight I went from being a volunteer to being one of the actual athletes. And, you know, that's a, a pretty phenomenal experience, especially in your home crowd in the Sydney Olympic Games, half an hour from home at 17 at 17 yeah it was uh looking back on it it's pretty pretty amazing
0: what was it like running your heat? you were running the 400 hurdles or 400, That's right, 400
1: flat 400 hurdles yeah to be honest awful <laughs> <laughs> i was so nervous that i remember sitting i was actually sitting next to Dion hemmings who was the previous olympic champion obviously knowing who she was i got so nervous i like vomited in the call room and then I came out into the stadium and the huge, like, rip-roaring Aussie crowd yelling, Then they didn't know you because you're, you know, you're just a young kid, but they saw the Aussie uniform. So, of course, they went, you know, it erupts in the stadium that there's an Aussie coming on the track. I was just shaking like a leaf. And then I tried, I went out so hard in the first part of the race. I blew the race, basically. Like, my young head didn't cope with that pressure. But, you know, I was there. I was never going to win. Like, you know, I was only there to fill a lane, really. But to have that experience under your belt was, was just extraordinary.
0: Of all the memories of running in that heat, what stays with you the most, do you think? Unfortunately,
1: it was letting myself down in the last 50 metres. I can't, I can't lie and say that it was all roses. Did um, you still think that? Yeah, absolutely, because I should have made the semi-final. But then, like, I look at it now and I'm like, who cares, it's only a semi-final. Like, really, if it was the final, a bit different. But um, I remember coming off the last hurdle and I was just tired and overwhelmed with the with the experience and I just jogged slightly. Like, as in I just slowed down, as a, as you do in a heat. And I think it's one of the mistakes that a lot of young athletes make is that, in Australia, through the heats, you roll into the finish line. Whereas at Olympic Games, you go gunning for the finish line, no matter what. And it's only twice in my whole career I've ever done that. And that was one time, that one, the Sydney Olympics, where I rolled over the line and lost the spot. So I came third. And unfortunately, I did it in the Golden League final about, I don't know, 2007 and lost a million bucks in someone dipping me on the line. I was like, nah, (laughs) two times it really mattered, unfortunately. But um, you learn from your mistakes
0: when you think of that 400 track you you start off on the bend and yeah. then there's the back straight you come flying around uh, the bend onto the home straight what's your favorite part of going around that track which is the favorite part Definitely of your the back track straight. The back straight. Well, I win
1: my races in the ho- in the um, the third leg, so the third 300, around the, the second curve, definitely. That's where I, if you ever watch any of my races, that's where I come through the group. No one likes the last 100. You've run fours before. No one likes the last 100 metres. I like metres. that last
0: bend coming flying around the corner. The yeah, yeah,
1: I agree with you. Mm. But I love the float down the back straight. So Phil King was my coach for many years and he used to say, fast, float, forward, fight. That's the way we used to run our race. And the float down the back straight when you're running fast, like you're just really high in your hips, your legs are just turning over, you're not fatigued yet, and you are fast, and you're clearing those hurdles beautifully. Even now, I can feel like I listen even sitting here, I just felt myself lift because it's just such a it's a beautiful feeling. And then around that, yeah, as you say, around that top bed and coming into the home straight is where if you've got it, um that's where I win races. So that's where most people in the four hundred start to drop their bundle and get the bear jumps on your back. And I have an incredible ability to push through that more than most. So, For me, that was always a lovely feeling when you come off the home straight. You're like, yep, I'm in front. I got this. This is amazing. And then the last hundred just hurts like stink. It's just awful.
0: (laughs) So this was really your first encounter with big, big crowds and Mm. focus on you, even in a limited way, in a heat. Was it attractive to you, that attention? Not at that point. That time I was just absolutely
1: petrified. By the time I saw my next big crowd was the Commonwealth Games in 2002. By then I'd been training... Consistently at that elite level for three years, and I was starting to, and I was training in, in Canberra at the AIS by then, and I was starting to really get to know what what elite running was. I started to love it then. I really loved getting in that room, in in that space with that crowd. In saying that, though, you don't always—I don't know how most athletes feel—but you don't really feel the crowd. You're so focused on what you're there to do. You're aware of it, but it's only the big major championships when you win and you get to do the victory lap afterwards that you fully get to appreciate that crowd. Do you um, almost not hear them? No, barely, I don't hear anything. The only time I did hear it, which was really beautiful, was the 2006 Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. And the crowd was loud, yelling so loud that I, it actually broke me completely out of my concentration. And I actually got to look around and go, oh, wow, this is amazing. And there was like all these Australian flags. And that was probably the, the only time. And thankfully, obviously, I was able to regain my focus and go back in. But we're so focused on what we're doing. You really don't even notice the crowd
0: around you. In those early days, were you given much training or advice on how to deal with The attention? Not at all. What do you think about that? I probably should have.
1: (laughs) Um, I mean, I didn't need it because on race day I was always such a contender that unless I was injured, like if you look at my, my career, I was either winning or I was injured. So unfortunately... I did never won the Olympics because of injury, but every other race that I ran, if I was in the final, I, I brought I brought home a gold medal. So I loved that big time racing. I handled that pressure really well in that setting. My off life track could have dealt with some some good social interaction, or so, some good psychological support on how to deal with kind of keeping everything in the rest of your life on track. But what when it what came, do you mean? Oh, like I was always breaking up with boyfriends or getting caught up in running degrees or trying to study at the same time. Now I, I advocate for that. I very much believe that young athletes should have their studies and their sport, but I would go too much. Like I'd take on five subjects when you're like, just take on two. Why do you need to do five? You know, you need to be recovered for training. And so I reckon, I think in hindsight, I did try a few times to see like a sports psychologist and things, but again, I didn't need help with my, my competitive track. I needed help with dealing with the boyfriend or dealing with the... I had a bit of an eating disorder at one point. So dealing with the off-life stuff rather than anything to do with racing and training because I was as the hardest trainer you could get.
0: And that time of life, if you're thinking late teens and early 20s, it can be a really fun time, but it's a really important time of people figuring out who they are, yes, exactly. managing risks, uh, dealing with things like alcohol, possibly drugs, uh, their sexuality, all those sorts of things. Did you become slightly out of sync with your friends who were not athletes? I lost a lot of my friends through
1: that time. We are now, funnily enough, all close again. So all my high school friends catch up a couple of times a year and we all have kids the same age. and We have a wonderful friendship group again, but I felt very out of sync. And also my whole life was, my whole track life was micromanaged. So I didn't get to explore any of those things. It was just unacceptable to go out, and have a life outside of sport. So I think again that's what I was struggling with that whole identity of who am I, what do I stand for, what I be- what do I believe in? The media's there, they're making comments on who you are and what you do. And I have I didn't I had no idea who I was. Like I, I was a bit of a lost headless chicken. I knew I could run fast. I knew I was really committed. I was very driven and very passionate quite teary at times, but then I, I had absolutely no identity outside of sport. Musicians, you know, artists, Sports people often have a similar thing because you're so focused in that one area of being the greatest in your sport
0: that you then lose that idea of self. That's a really interesting contrast that you're talking about, about being so capable and together mm. in one aspect of life and so lost in the yeah. other. It, it's, it's, the
1: oxymoron doesn't, isn't lost on me. Like I, I get it, but it's just like what do you do in that space? Because you're also thrown up to, into a grown-up's world. I never really had a teenager or a child. Like I had a childhood child, but never had that sort of exploratory stage, as you say, as a teenager. And all your friends are in their mid-30s or late 20s at least. Very few people your own age are, are competing on the international circuit at 18 or 19. And we didn't get any media training, for example, into learning how to deal with that kind of aspect as well. It was it was a privilege to be there but it was also a time where i feel like things could have been done differently to 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 upskill you in normal life like even just finances i had you know i'm earning this money and earning it like a you know a wage through your sponsors i have no idea what to do with it so like you just it, you, there's all those adulting life skills that were absolutely non-existent and i had people ma- managing it all so therefore you didn't really have to learn to live on
0: you know stand on your own two feet 2003 you win gold at the world titles for hurdles mm-hmm. which is amazing incredible achievement but then there's expectation that comes with that because we're only a year out from the olympics um how much pressure did you feel after winning that world title that you're going to be the one who's expected to to bring home gold in the olympics
1: uh- I was an expectation I had of myself as well. So, I mean, I was running times that should have brought home the gold medal, and the following year leading into the Athens Olympics, I hadn't been beaten the entire season. So I think the expectation was very much placed on self as well as from the, my external team. Um and the world, let's be really honest, the, tw- the world championships is harder to win than the Olympics because there's actually a fourth. So there's a third American and there's also the fourth so that whoever the world champion is from the previous worlds gets an automatic selection to that world championship. So you could have four Russians or four Americans or four Jamaicans, whereas the Olympics is always only three. So theoretically it should be harder and it's a professional sport versus non-funded. So the Olympics you don't win a prize pocket. you got to remember in Australia we we run because we love it. There is a lot of countries out there that if they win the world championships, the money they generate from winning will put their food on the table for a year or send their brothers and sisters to college. So there's other athletes out there that run for very different reasons than winning a gold like we do in Australia, which is just because we love the sport. They're doing it because they want to literally turn their lives and their families' lives around. So there's a lot of young athletes. Like I remember I met this amazing American who was a double Olympic champion and he'd never won a world title, and he said to me, I would in a heartbeat swap with you. Please give me your two world titles and you can have my two Olympic. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because you made money out of it and I didn't make a cent. So, you know, other than endorsements, it's not, so it's a very different internationally around what people want to achieve. And for me, the Olympics was the bee's knees, but for them it's the world championships they want to win. So I guess from my expectations, it was just a matter of time that if I turned up, did the right thing, um that the olympic gold would eventually be an Aussie medal podcast broadcast this is conversations with Sally Sara
0: Yana, you were just telling us about winning the world championship in two thousand and three. Expectations are on that you are going to bring it home at the Athens Olympics in two thousand and four. You're getting ready in your last preparations for the Olympics, uh, doing a drill that you've done many times before. What happens?
1: I still to this day remember it happening, and I can't. Um, I can't say we did anything wrong, but. We pushed the limits a little bit too much in the warm-up. So you, you do this like what's called a spider drill over the hurdles. They're a couple of metres apart. We pushed them even further apart and I just heard So you're sort my of ego. lifting your leg over. Yeah, it. exactly. Like you're swinging it round on the outside. It was a bit unfortunate that my right uh, lateral meniscus just tore in one of the drills. And so you just, it was loud. You could hear it. It was like a bang noise. All my, my physio knew what it was straight away because they've obviously studied that. And you know I dropped to the ground and it was kind of it was, it was over pretty much. So we assumed that would mean we wouldn't even make it to the Athens games. And it was only, it was two and a half weeks or something before the games. It was very close. And it was so unfortunate because I'd broken the world record in training that week. So we we knew we were on absolute fire. Like it was the fastest I've ever been in my life. Phenomenal speeds coming out of our legs. And it was heartbreaking, obviously, because you don't, actually don't really know how to deal with that situation. And ultimately now as as a medical professional and we we know that it's just sport and so like you know realistically we've seen what's happening with COVID and Ukraine and all the stuff that's going around the world. It's very hard to justify the, the the pain that was associated to that event, being that it is just sport, and we live in such a beautiful country with so many opportunities. But at the time, it was absolutely soul crushing.
0: Do you remember physically? And I don't mean the pain of your knee, but physically how your body felt when you heard that go pop. Initially, I was like, "Okay, it's
1: fine," because I'm a hugely optimistic person. It's fine. It's fine. It'll be better in a few days. It'll be better in a few days. I'll be fine. I can do this. We went and had an MRI to check whether there was something more damaging, or and it was when the the Swedish doctor said, "I'm really sorry, but you, you know, you can't run for at least a year. This is a pretty." horrific injury and the safest thing to do if you want to run ever again is to go home and rehab this correctly. Have an operation here, we'll remove most of your meniscus and then, you know, rehab it well and you'll you'll have no problems coming back for Beijing. And I just, your whole body just crumbles into disappointment.
0: Could anyone console you?
1: Funnily enough, a journalist was with me, and we—I actually spoke to him only a couple of days ago, about um, or about a week and a half ago now—about the Victorian Commonwealth Games being cancelled. And it's just such—it's brought such memories and smiles to my face when he when his familiar voice came over. His name's Scotty Gullen. He hates me telling this story, but it won so many favours in me because his editor was on the phone going, where is Yana Pittman? Get that story. And he was sitting on the end of my bed saying, I have no idea where she is. Not a clue <laughs> to, her, to his editor. But you can imagine how much faith that gave in me, that it was about me that day and he was looking after my heart and the disappointment and didn't care about his own career. And that's pretty rare, you know, that anyone would do that. So he was the one there sitting there going, right, mate, what are we going to do now? Phil King was obviously there, my coach. Debbie was there too, Flintoff King, the Australian record holder at the time, his wife, who was the 88 Olympic champion because we thought we were going to run so fast she'd got on a plane to come over and and, um, watch the last part of the chapter. So there was a great support team of all of us there. For quite a lot of the time it was just Scotty there sitting, talking to me about how devastating it was and it was a tough 24 hours.
0: You had an offer from a surgeon in the UK to try and fix this problem. There was huge media attention because it was so close uh, to the Olympic Games. You had that procedure and then came out and pushed your crutches away as you emerged. I did. What what sort of reaction did that draw?
1: Well, it's funny because um, at the time that's when my label of being dramatic came around. But I actually, when I I recently did the uh, Australian Story last year, and I've, I've seen the footage, but don't laugh. So it's the first time I've actually ever seen the footage. And it's actually really benign. Like I literally just, in my head, I threw them like 30 metres away. It was this really big dramatic thing. I literally like just dropped them. Like, so I have no idea why it was made into this massive thing. Because ultimately what I was trying to show was our Aussies, w- when we're down, we're never really down. So to me, it was just a classic example of saying a week ago, I was not, I was told I'd never run. And as an Aussie, we don't listen to that. We defy the odds. We can do this. So to me, it was such a positive story. I could not see how anyone could spin that other than, look how great Australians are, right? So I was not prepared for the whole, oh, how dramatic she is. I'm like, really? But now, think about it now, though. If I did that now in the current social media and influencer, it would be like amazing. It was just a little bit premature. What do you think of that tag, the, the Yana drama now? I'm actually not dramatic, but I'm very passionate. So that I think you can look at someone and say, well, the passion and the drama is quite similar. And so I deal with really awfully traumatic things on a daily basis right now, and I'm very good in a drama and a pressure situation. A proper but drama. Like real dramas mm. now. And I've had real dramas all my life. You know, I've had awful miscarriages and cervical cancer scares and like real dramas that I didn't really need to create more. But I think because I cry easily, I speak really fast my name is Yana, it rhymes with drama. I always said if Mum had have called me Helen, I'd be heroic Helen. Like, you know, <laughs> just, it's a bit unfortunate that I had a name that married so well with drama. But um, I love that space about me now. You know, for, again for many years, I really thought it was my weakness, and it was the thing that made me different and unacceptable. And so, after the Athens Olympics, when I had so much media and so much drama, 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 I went home going right. I'm not going to do any media anymore. I'm going to be really, you know, really quiet and say nothing. It it did the opposite. It just meant that I lost who I was as a person, whereas what I was able to do through tears and crying and whatever for myself was move past disappointment very quickly. So when something didn't go to plan, instead of being like the average which bottles it up like we're told to, I mean, my dad used to say to me, suck it up, princess, here's a cup of concrete, you know, you can do better than that. But I actually don't think that's the right thing. I think we need, to, we need to, whatever kind of personality you are, if you're someone who needs to have a cry or have a day off and, and, and really delve into that discomfort and heartache to then move forward, then you have to do that. And for some people that may not be crying. For some people it might be going and punching a boxing bag. It might be going on a hike. But for me, I, when something goes really, which heart breaks my heart, I just want to have a really good cry about it and then I move on. And that's a skill. So being able to leave that pain behind is a massive skill because it means then your eyes are open for the next amazing opportunity ahead of you rather than being closed doors because you're so sad and wallowing and feeling you know, lost in that disappointment. So after many, many years, I realised that my passion, my drama, my, my, my tears are an enormous weapon that I have because I'm allowed to move through that space
0: of disappointment far quicker than average. You ran in Athens and came fifth. You got out there after that surgery and, and came fifth. What did you think about coming
1: fifth? Awful, devastated at the time. As a budding surgeon myself now, I realise it was a minor miracle we made it to the start line at all. And um, Dr Haddad over in London had literally performed the amazing surgery to get us to the start line. So I realised that it was actually an enormous, incredible success story. But when you're there and you've been reigning world champion, reigning Commonwealth champion, undefeated for a season, to not come home with a medal was, was rough as guts.
0: Were there any words that helped to move you on a bit? No, I just got over it. So, and don't get me
1: wrong, even now I still have that discomfort, but i have always a big believer in using that discomfort to push into something new. And again, a little bit like the fears and the drama, I really strongly feel like the disappointment and love and opportunity sits in the same spectrum, but you've got to use it. So I use the disappointment of Athens to train harder, to find new opportunities, to try and move past that, that fear of of failure. And ultimately I think it taught me a great lesson because it taught me that I can deal with it. So I'm a bit like a bit different from other athletes and perhaps motivational speakers and whatnot because I'm a big believer if you look at a situation and you think of the worst case scenario that can come out of it, and if you can survive that, then it's worth doing. Whereas most people say, oh, surround yourself by positivity, don't think of the fallout, you know, just just get on with it, deal with, it, deal with the consequences afterwards. I'm like, no, I want to sit there and go, what is the absolute worst thing that's going to come here? I lose the Olympics, I look like an idiot. Can you survive that? Yes, you can. Then it's worth doing. Why do you think that works for you? I think it works for most people because if you actually confront that fear first on, our, our ultimately what stops us from doing things is we're afraid of what what, what the outcome is going to be. So if you confront that fear straight on and say, yes, I can survive that, then all of a sudden it softens the blow because you're like, well, I've already worked out what the worst-case scenario is. That's survivable, so anything from there is an absolute bonus and 99.9% it's never going to be that worst-case scenario. It's always something so much better. And I, I see that as a really positive way and it really works because it, so many of us, again, don't confront that fear and we sit there nervous and, you know, a bit of a wreck trying to make, make a plan or a goal for, for what should just be an amazing chance to push yourself forward in your career. But we get stuck in that, oh my God, I can't do this. Oh my God. And that chaos of mind. Whereas if you just sit there and go, mm, that could really suck, but I'm still going to wake up the next day. I'm still going to feel, you know, I've still got my family. I've still got my other career or whatever it is it just softens the blow so much that you no longer get afraid of taking opportunities, which is why I do so... I you look at my resume, I'm not an idiot. I can see that I've done lots of amazing things and I'm a very ordinary person, Sal, that just says yes to everything and go, well, something will work.
0: And it has. What happened in Athens wasn't the last Olympic disappointment for you. Um, your body wasn't doing what you wanted it to do in the lead-up to the uh, Beijing Olympics and then again for London as well. Yep. It's one thing for that to happen once as a professional athlete, but how do you explain it happening <laughs> again and again? I only look back on, it, I think it was fate and that it happened for a reason
1: because London, not as much because London, I wasn't in world cracking shape, but Beijing was identical to Athens, reigning world champion, reigning Commonwealth champion. I'd even had a baby only eight months before winning the world champs in 2007. So it was like unheard of in that time. You know, Nobody had babies and went back to sport. This was the you know, the beginning of the change of era of women's sport. Um, So surely you can come and win an Olympics just after, you know, a couple of months after winning the world champs if you can get back from having a little one. So I have no idea what, why those sort of things happen. But I now look back on it and realise that it was because of those disappointments that I became a doctor because I was – at the end of London, I remember thinking, oh my God, three Olympics in a row, how unlucky can one human be? And thinking, this is just, this just sucks. And I was, I was obviously feeling very down and flat and really contemplating the why of things. Um, and what did I do? What could I have done differently? What could I do? Did I deserve to do something differently? Um, and yet again, my wonderful mother sort of piped into that point and said, yeah, well, You know, when you're a kid, you never even wanted to be an athlete. You wanted to be a doctor. Like, you know, why don't you go back and and do medical school? Like this would just be this is a great opportunity, Yanni. You've taught yourself through all the failures of sport that you're really resilient. So go and do medicine. And you know, I look at that and think, oh, thanks, Mum. Failure. That's great. I failed at the sport. And she's like, No, 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 no. It's not failure unless you look at failure in a negative way. It's a it's an opportunity to learn from your mistakes and realize that actually, through your disappointment, you triumphed because you got up the next day and you kept going. In fact, you show you're incredibly resilient and incredibly strong when it comes to disappointment. So you've got nothing to lose. Go and sit the entrance exam to medicine. If you don't get in, you'll survive it because you've survived much worse. And she was right. And so I did. I sat the medical entrance exam that year and failed it, of course, because, you know, it wouldn't be a fairy tale if you won the, <laughs> if you got in the first year. And I got, I remember, seven rejection letters from all the universities around Australia basically saying you're not quite clever enough to be a doctor and then the following year mum calls me again cuz it's only an annual exam and says you're going to give it another crack you gave the olympics 3 so come on have some have some balls and give it a go again and thankfully i i passed the, that exam and i can tell you the day the the exam results flashed up and i knew i was going to be a doctor 80% of the pain of the olympics washed away and then the day i graduated and i actually was ducks of my university and Sally not because i'm clever honestly it was hard work it was just i mean it's all the james Roos kids right they, you know they're really 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 bright one percenters in the world, I am not that. I'm just a workhorse, but I started my guts out. And the day they announced me as as ducks of my year, every little bit of pain of that sport was washed away. And now I get to have the most phenomenal career where I literally get to birth babies and, you know, be with women through disappointment and heartache and infertility, which I've been through, and step into someone else's life in such a privileged role. I look at it and I think I wouldn't change it for the world because I can hand on heart say if I had have won the Olympic Games, I would not have had the guts to go into medicine or any reason to try and wipe that discomfort away. Because if I, if I put it into perspective, I was a 30. When I finished spot, I was 30. A single mum, I'd burnt pretty much all my financial bickies trying to get to the Olympics. Divorce, as I said, so, so apparent. And that is not the area that, like, going to medical school was absolutely idiotic. If you think about the context of where you were in life, I could have gone into commentating TV or something where I could have had a lucrative life. No, I went to, you know, the hardest degree. No, I'm sure people would debate that. One of the hardest degrees which is very time consuming. And I am almost certain I wouldn't have done that if I had have been the Olympic champion and I wouldn't sort that for the world.
0: What sort of reaction did you get as you turned up as a medical student and <laughs> people clocked your face and clocked your name?
1: Look, I was also old, remember. So um, I, there was like three or four of us that were over 30 in the course and everyone else was like 19 and 20 because it was an undergraduate medical degree. And they were all the kids that would have watched you at the Olympics and did projects on you at school. So there was, yeah, half a dozen kids that were petrified of you because they're just like, oh, my God, yeah, you're you. But after a few years, you, you know, you live in day in, day out with them. Again, I fit in so well in that community because we're all a bit dorky. We're all a bit different. We're all very driven. You can't do medicine without having that drive. So I found my village. I found my people where
0: I fit in really well. What sort of perspective did it give you? You were talking about it a bit before. What sort of perspective did it give you on what's really important, losing a race and what can go on in a hospital, even on just one night shift, what can unfold?
1: Well, actually, you're right because I now work at um, the Royal Hospital for Women in Sydney. I'm a junior doctor still. I've just applied for the obstetric training program a week ago and it feels like the Olympics all over again. I I was so nervous. It literally felt like I was running the Olympic Games. It was an interview on Friday last week and I'm now waiting for the results and my whole world is hanging hanging by a thread right now. So it's interesting to feel that same passion again for something you love so much. But it puts it very much into perspective because we have women who lose their babies. You know, we've had horrible, hard situations where you need to sit with someone while they go through the greatest heartache They will, and nothing can ever compare to that. Like, you know, term babies, babies that have unfortunately just passed away at home, they've come in, there's no heartbeat. Um, Women who are having the fifth or sixth miscarriage and you just think, how is that fair? Like how is life ever fair? And sometimes you get to share your stories with them too. I've had four miscarriages myself, so I regularly share that that journey with my patients because now I have six kids, so I say, you know, careful what you wish for, kind of. (laughs) But that true honour of sitting with someone through such heartache, yes, it puts yourself into perspective, but it is such such a privilege to walk the path with someone and and hopefully make a tiny difference in how they experience that, that heartbreak. And I have had one who I, who she she's fine with me telling. I have had this one particular lady. It was the first fetal anomaly that I'd seen. So there was unfortunately a really bad anomaly in her little one. And she lost the baby at about 18 weeks and she had to birth the baby. So I sat with her for the whole labour. And then we held the little one together and she cried and we talked about it. And then the privilege of her sending me via social media a message a year later saying she was pregnant again and then being able to be there through the birth of her when she birthed her beautiful little boy takes any discomfort I've ever had away. Like that was a true highlight in my life to be able to support someone through that and know that I made such a difference in her, you know, in
0: her life and her tragedy. In addition to the procedures and tests that you might be carrying out, how much of it is about managing expectations for people? In terms of their treatment and their, look, yes, um, I don't have that
1: as much yet, because I'm so junior. So ultimately, if those conversations have to happen, like the expectations around
0: management and treatment, it happens with my consultant. I guess more with, but, the, with the babies, when, when there's been so much expectation of a baby arriving oh, and, yes. and people, not only that arrival, but often people you will plan think, everything. well, five years from now, yeah. that child will, child we'll will this be at school and, and, and that is all, all taken away. Yeah. How do you deal with that with a patient? You just sit with them.
1: Some patients want to talk about it. Some patients want you to talk about your experiences. Um, I think being a mature doctor and also having been through so many miscarriages myself and also having children, I, I'm very good at reading that room and reading that space. And I think I'm good at that anyway. <laughs> I like to think I'm good at that. And some and sometimes they, you, do, you say nothing. You just hold their hand and say nothing. So it will just be there for them in that time. And I think being a well-known person somehow makes that better. They They feel like they know you before you walk into the room. And so not all your patients know you and I've had quite a few who haven't and then find out later and they're like, oh, thank you for being there with me in that. But it does make a little difference when they just feel like you're a space they've been through or they know your own journey in the past. Um, And most of the time it's just sitting there, just sitting there and being present.
0: You've got six kids, as you say, I which do. I say that as if it's a small thing <laughs> and it blows my mind with all that you're doing. It still blows my mind. You're doing. What, what kind of mum are you, Yama?
1: Um, I'm a very hands-on mum. I'm a slobbery, lovey, over-the-top, cuddly mother. Some of it, that comes from mother guilt, being away and having a very um, busy career, obviously. And the other part comes, I think, of wanting kids so badly. You know, alongside my Olympics as a small human, as in a a five or six-year-old, I always wanted half a dozen children. Like I've always been someone. Why? What do you think was going on? I don't know. I think my mum is one of five and my my dad's one of six, so other way around, sorry. Um, So there's always been a lot of brothers and sisters around. And one of my aunties had four boys and I loved the whole busyness of her house as a kid. And so I just always thought I'd want a really big family. And so, yeah, that was my plan. It's always been my plan to have Four, at least four, six, or eight. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. I just it's something it's it's higher up on the agenda than even sport was for like I definitely knew that family, which is why I decided eventually to have the two little girls on my own, because after my divorce from Chris Rawlinson, who was my coach, and also the the love of my life, I'm being really honest, i I loved him so, so deeply. Um, and so heartbroken, took so long to get over, that I was like, I'm never going to meet someone. And so, you know, I had the very brave decision with my mother to go go solo and have the girls by myself. I, I feel like my children are my, my godsend. Like, I really believe they are
0: what keeps me going every day. You've got quite an age range there I in do. the kids. <laughs> um, what's it been like when the kids have figured out who you were and who you are? Yeah, it's funny you say that because my oldest
1: um, and I just did the Amazing Race together the television show. And so I think for the first time, he sort of realised, oh, mum's mum's actually human because I made so many mistakes on the show. Whereas before that, he just thought I was like this person that could do anything. And so it's quite a levelling experience when we're sitting down at the end of it. And he's like, oh, I just, I realise you're actually, you make mistakes, mum, you know, like you, you're human, which was nice. Whereas my little daughter, Jemima, who's my six-year-old, regularly tells everyone, my mum's Yana Pittman. And I'm like, oh God, how embarrassing. So she's just in that phase of working out the mums a bit special. Um, the others don't care. So Emily, my middle one, doesn't has never cared. She just loves me and cuddles me. and
0: Yeah. In 2014, in the middle of medicine and motherhood, uh, you had an invitation that you couldn't refuse, and that was to have a go at a different kind of Olympics, the Winter Olympics in bobsledding, as really the engine house running yes. to get that sled going. Why did you say yes to that?
1: I was looking for another sport because I realised how lucky and privileged I was to be an Olympian um, but I hadn't did not have a good relationship with the Games. because I mean Sydney was great because obviously I was only a kid and got out there and had fun but I went to win and it didn't happen and I, I wanted to actually stop and smell the roses. So I couldn't even remember really what it felt like to run in Athens and, and I just couldn't remember it. Like I was there but I don't remember, I don't feel like I was actually present in the moment and so I wanted to make another Olympic Games and really feel what it feels like to stand at the start line, breathe in the air, look at the crowd, be really part and present in that space. And so I tried boxing, rowing, cycling and, and bobsled, and bobsled won because it was cool, it was fun. And I also only had to wait two years <laughs> because the Winter Olympics is obviously two years after London. Whereas I had to would have had to wait four years if I made I think cycling was the one I was loving most in 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 the Summer Olympics, but fell into it really and it was an absolute blast.
0: What's the psychology of the bobsled like? Because it's this explosion of, mm. of energy and then once the sled gets faster than you, you've got jump to in. jump in. Yep. And because you're not the pilot, you've kind of got to duck your head yep. down and whatever happens, happens. happens. So That's right. So what was that lack of control like <laughs> for you?
1: I loved it actually. <laughs> um, but I'm also an adrenaline junkie. So you're probably right and people would probably think, oh, gosh, she's so control. Like everything in my life, I'm so minute, like I, I micromanage and it's so well controlled. But I, I also love being out of control. Um, so I'm quite spontaneous in doing things. And so, yes, the first couple of times was scary, to be honest with you. How like, fast it? Very scary. Oh, around 130 to 145 kilometres an hour. But there's no seat belts, There's no cushioning. It feels like a giant washing machine. And it's so funny because I remember before I started, it was actually 2013 when I first started um, the Olympics, which was 2014. I went up to, like, SeaWorld up on the Gold Coast and I went on, one of, you know, that jet racer? And I thought, like, oh, it's going to be like this, fast and smooth and really lovely. And then when I actually got in the sled, it was awful. Like, it was really bumpy and uncomfortable and you'd whacked into the side, your bruises everywhere. It was so exhilarating. And it was also just such a great sport, so, such great camaraderie with the other athletes in the bobsled but also at the Winter Olympics. You know, there was only 56 in the Winter Olympic team but we all cheered each other on, you know. We all went and watched Chumpy and then you watched Lydia Lassila, you did, you're in and you're with people's sport together it was such a um a team environment whereas the summer olympics is fun i've got a few friends outside of track and field but most of the sports are quite insular you don't really sort of hang around each other as much you watch each other like oh that's Ian thought but you don't actually really interact as much whereas the winter games you know i train my coach my winter my um my weightlifting coach coached 26 of the team it was amazing like it was absolutely phenomenal Phenomenal experience. And
0: you were the first Australian woman to compete in a winter and summer Correct. Olympics. yeah, which is pretty cool. As well, an able-bodied athlete, yes, there was a few people that had done it as a um, in the Paralympics. It almost sounds, as you're talking, Yana, it almost sounds like it's kind of making peace with the Olympics. I think it did. Um, I made peace with it because
1: I, start, I knew, well, there was never a chance of us meddling. Uh, we, our goal was to hopefully top, be top ten, so there was that took the pressure off of why we were there. But I just, I yes, I know. I think I think you said it perfectly. It was it was making peace with the games. I was already into medicine at that point, so I knew my my career pathway was going in somewhere that I absolutely adored, and I just I genuinely wanted to realise how lucky I was to go to the games. You know, people try every day to make the game, the Olympics, to just be an Olympian because once an Olympian, always an Olympian. You know, whereas I felt like I'd really taken that for granted because I was there to win, and I and I wanted to go and just feel and enjoy the experience and
0: realise, wow, gosh, I'm lucky. Like, I'm so lucky and love it. So, And that's exactly what it did. With sport, there's often such a limited window for sporting careers and then it's done. No matter how much you wanted and how hard you tried, your body won't take you along further given you've had that experience, what does medicine look like to you? If all goes well, this is (laughs) a thing you could do for for decades. That must be incredible.
1: Yeah. And look, I mean, in saying that, I think a lot of people retire in their mid fifties and sixties too, because it's a hard career. You know, there is a lot of pressure and there's a lot of things to deal with where, so I sort of think, well, I've got a whole career, even though I'm older, I still have, you know, hopefully 20, 30 years of practicing as a doctor. Fitting it in with life is hard though. So I've got to try and find more balance, which is interesting and something I'm working on at the moment. But, you know, again, you're right it is different there's no finite ending point until you make it and like i have role models that i unfortunately Catherine hamlin's passed away now but she's someone who i absolutely love from um obviously she was a fistula surgeon in in africa and you know she lived into her early 90s and was still in the theaters and being very very hands on um as a surgeon into you know until she was 90 so i just look at it and i think you find someone like that and then you realize life is possible and i've always tried to do that is is surround myself by people who push boundaries more than me and therefore normalize what i'm doing what do you
0: think the future holds for you?
1: Hopefully, a letter in a couple of weeks to say that I have <laughs> been accepted onto the ONG training program. But if not, because there's a big, there's a strong chance I'll get, I will not get on this year. It's um, it's just like the Olympics. You try again, go for it again and again and again, and don't no, never give up. And if not, I've got an incredible family and a wonderful women's advocacy role in the public, talking about cervical cancer and incontinence and all the different things. And I just need to use my use my space to hopefully make make it better for other people.
0: How much do you think you've grown from that young athlete who was in the spotlight to now someone who's holding people's lives in in your hands?
1: I'm still the same person, would you believe, as I was back then. I just have more belief in people and belief in the process of life. Um, I've learnt to not sweat the small stuff as much as, you know, when you were younger and things like that, I think. But ultimately I just hold on to the fact that everything happens for a reason and you use every, every opportunity to better the lives of others and the better the lives of your family. And if you're doing that, then sort of every day is a blessing.
0: Will there be a time when you ever sit still, Jana Pittman? No, no, that's probably never going to happen. <laughs> I try.
1: I do when I'm holding my babies. But yeah, I think I'm always, I've always been someone who's a bit of a go-getter and I have to own and honour that. That's okay. You know, a lot of people might find that tiring, but it's my happy, happy place for me.
0: Jana, thank you.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm James Valentine, and on the brand new season of my podcast, Headroom, I want to know, what do people believe? I believe that music is like the sinew between the spiritual and the complex. Maybe they believe in karma, heaven, or the innate goodness of people. Even if you only believe that your avocado sandwich is the best avocado sandwich there's ever been. These are the kind of questions I'll be asking some high-profile Australians like George Miller and Claire
0: Wright on my podcast, Headroom, The Belief Series, available now on the ABC Listen app.